Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. And this time after a bit of a long break, we took a took a long break last summer. This one was a little different. Um, Akiko, do you want to tell us why? Um, I have been recuperating from a unfortunate incident at the gym. I took a bad step, fell on my bottom and spent the next eight weeks recovering. Eight weeks and counting. Seven weeks and counting. Oh, okay. And not working, not playing in the not Philharmonic. Playing. playing, but not playing at work. Take us back to the incident a little bit. People keep kind of guessing what it was and they'll be like, oh, were you like, you know, the, at the, I don't know why it bothered me at the hospital. The doctors kept talking about how I was doing step aerobics and I was like, <laughs> that makes you I didn't sound like, like a... take a time machine back to the eighties and like don like skin tight, shiny spandex. And, and one and was, two. <laughs> yeah. I, no, so I was not, was not doing step aerobics. It was, it did involve a box, um, you know, those foam boxes, you know, they come in various heights and this one was the lowest one. It was a 12 inch box. And I was just trying to do some, something to keep my heart rate up between weight lifting rounds. And, um, yeah, it just, it was one of those weird things that just, I guess I was kind of tired and my foot didn't come cleanly down from the box. My other foot was already on the way up. So the box slid toward me and I landed, I had nothing to, nowhere to go, but on my bottom. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I've had other people ask me, people who don't know you very well, um, but just to make it clear, I mean, you, you're probably at the gym or were at that time, five times a week. I mean, doing these kinds of classes. And, yeah. Yeah. And in I fact, think, I was joking that, uh, I should probably spend as much time playing the violin as I did at the gym because <laughs> at that point it wasn't even, we're just working out and you're running and. If you added up all the time I spent spent exercise-wise, it yeah dwarfed my actual time <laughs> practicing on my instrument. So yeah, that was it was a little bit sobering. So now we, we finally uh, my my practicing found a way to reverse that proportion <laughs> against your will. And yeah, I think just the day before you had run ten miles. Yeah, so, that was disappointing because yeah. um, it's been a while since I ran that far, as you know, and so it felt like a milestone to get back there. <laughs> It was. <laughs> Won't be seen again for a while. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to you getting back to it because you will. Um, I know they they didn't like the look of the fall and all that, so they called some paramedics who. They talked to me as if I were probably about sixty years old or or older. <laughs> Wait, and what? Did they ask you who was president and expected you to say it was no, Ronald Reagan? Just, they, they, I do remember that, by the way. Um, no, they um, asked me if I was on any medications. And when I said no, they they looked really, like, encouraging. And they said, ooh, very healthy. <laughs> I'm not sure if they... <laughs> I'm not sure if they were thought... I was kind of out of it because of the fall or because they were trying to speak slowly to me in any event. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm sure. sure. And, you... and, you know, they seemed so like, you know, they wanted to really cheer for me when I said I wasn't on any medications regularly. And then, um, then they asked me, I think more than once if I really was used to exercising. <laughs> it was so a little bit insulting. You're covering their bases. I thought, I, you know, other than having just fallen on my, on my rear, I thought I looked like I was, you know, 
acceptable shape. Like maybe this is something I do more than once a year. <laughs> they, weren't, they didn't seem so sure about that. So, yeah. Well. A little humbling. We got you to the ER with a little difficulty because you were in pain. And then, you know, ER did a cursory check plus an x-ray and said nothing was broken. So, you know, take this Advil and all that and which you did for a couple of days and it was not getting better. It was getting much worse. As you recall, I got home and was almost instantly sure something was not right. And I tried to sit down on a regular, like on the bed or something. And I was, there was like a, a terrible stabbing, burning sort of, uh, it was, it was strange cause it was a pain that wasn't present until I, I, I triggered, triggered some movement or nerve or something, you know, and so everything would be fine. And then I'd sit down and, or try to stand up and, and then this, this horrible, I don't think there's any way I can actually describe how terrible it was. So that, you know, I, I try not to be dramatic about it, but so that pain stayed with me for the next, mm, yeah, week, I guess it was a solid week of, of going through that. So that wasn't so fun. Right. I mean, anytime you tried to basically get down or get up. Yeah. Still, you know, still the doctors are pretty stumped by what that was. I mean, I, it was obviously some kind of nerve that I'd tweaked with this fall, but, um, well, but sure. the doctors were stumped and in the hospital anyway, that pain doctors had no answers. And so that's not so encouraging. When Well, we're skipping the fact that we went back to the ER and then they did a scan right. and found so, there was which, a fracture. Which is why I ended up hospitalized, but yeah. Yeah. Fracture of the sacrum, which I pronounced sacrum for the first couple days until I, mean, I, was... I think we made a, a number of uh, Red of Spring jokes right <laughs> that's true <laughs> um, so yeah seven nights in the hospital and um, yeah go Percocet that was the yeah for anybody who's wondering um, what my painkiller of choice is for some horrible horrible uh, otherwise uncurable pain it's Percocet but yeah but did have some side effects and they did warn you to get off it within two weeks if you could. And you did. Yeah. So thank goodness for that. I was on so many medications in the hospital. It was kind of staggering. They'd come in every 90 minutes or so and shoot me up with something else that didn't work. And, <laughs> and yeah, that was, and I, you know, other than that, it was, it was strange. You know, I, I, I was actually after a few days thinking, I'm, I actually have not been bored everyone was like, you must be going crazy in this hospital room. You know, I couldn't, I literally could not get up out of bed. I think that it's possible that I'm exactly the kind of person who takes, takes to bed rest very naturally. Yeah. Sure. And you discovered the great British baking show. I did. I started convalescence. It's an unfortunate, um, timing of <laughs> getting into that show and being unable to move very much because, uh, I, rediscovered my <laughs> obsession with sugar and <laughs> the exact moment where I was unable to physically do anything about that other than, you know, bake and eat. So, and we watched some good movies and had a few good takeout meals in the hospital. So, oh, but you didn't, uh, yeah, but you didn't get into the things that I actually made. Oh, well, well my, since you got home. Yeah. Well, because of my, my newfound courage, I, you know, after watching this show, I thought, well, these people can then throw together a tray of cream puffs, you know, 
And on top of it, they can, you know, make a showstopper cake with the cream puffs involving like an entire chocolate sculpture. And I was like, these people can do this in three hours. I'm sure I can put together a halfway decent birthday cake for you halfway that was an amazing first of all it wasn't even a cake. I, I didn't burn down the house and i didn't burn my hand off so. i mean this was a sculpture of cream puffs <laughs> i have a picture i should post that picture <laughs> my little half, half tower cream puffs so yeah it was uh, it was but it was i think uh, a nice surprise for you it was amazing i i was shocked so so the, this is one of my projects during my convalescence here has well, been was this sort of does it relate to performance <laughs> performance anxiety on the violin performance anxiety in front of the mixer i mean my personality is just like and i I really become sort of paralyzed by my inability to to predict how something's going to turn out sometimes and um there's definite i wouldn't even call them parallels i think it's just you know it translates so directly to to playing for me so you know maybe i need to watch hours and hours of a show about playing the violin <laughs> maybe that would inspire me to just get out there and do it you know but fortunately since no one's expecting me to to turn out world-class or even high level <laughs> baked goods on a regular basis i think that when it happens you know everyone's astonishment is w- reward enough for me but you know i think that that's not quite the case on the on the violin so well so since then you haven't been at work and right. in, in fact we we both this happened right before the LA Phil was to go on a, an Asia tour. Right. Well, the so. LA Phil still went on the Asia tour, but just we didn't go. <laughs> really? They went without me? <laughs> I didn't hear about that. Um, but we knew, I mean, it pretty much as soon as you fell, we knew you weren't going to go because, I mean, fracture or not, with that much pain, you weren't going to be getting on an airplane. In yeah, well, that a, one guy, days. the first guy thought uh, I'd be fine in five days, so... Yeah. There, there was that guy, and then, uh, but yeah, pretty quickly, I think we figured it out. But I think we, at that point, we still thought that I would go, right? Um, but then once it was clear, <laughs> I mean, once you'd been in the hospital for a few days, it was like, huh? Even if she comes home tomorrow, um, we don't have any family out here, and so it was clear I needed to be here to take care of you. And luckily, that was just fine with the orchestra, so. The first couple stands <laughs> of uh, the Philharmonic looked a little different for the tour, but I hear that they managed okay without us. Yeah, I think they did. Unfortunately. They got by. They, you know. <laughs> um, just we'd like to fantasize about being irreplaceable. Apparently, it's not true. Um, you know, everybody at work, obviously, since I, I went back to work after the tour, so that's been four weeks or so that I've been back. And, um, of course, everyone asks about you every day which is nice. And, um, I'm sure concern is turning to a uh, morbid curiosity, but yes. <laughs> so yeah, at first it's like, how is a Kiko? And like, how is a Kiko? And then, so how's a Kiko? <laughs> I, I think the word is now where, where's a Kiko? Well, <laughs> well, I mean, look, the, your neurosurgeon, right when he saw the pictures, he said, eh, that's going to be three months before you can work again. So we're, we're only a little more than halfway through that. Yeah, so. we like that guy. Um, well, see, so, I mean, how has it been? Look, in some ways, it's everyone's dream to not show up to work tomorrow. Um, but tomorrow stretches into weeks. And we covered this a little bit. And we had a whole episode about injuries and all that. But now that you're still right. in this one. And um, this one, you know, it's it's funny. It's like, what would you rather have? I mean, 
In this case, I'm actually able to practice as much as I want. Standing up. <laughs> I, as much as I want. So, yeah, however much that is. But, um, yeah, I haven't tried sitting down as much because, of course, sitting down isn't as comfortable. But um, even from, a f- I think, one or two days after I got home from the hospital, I I had, you know, I had an urge to to play. I think it was just, I, I just felt so out of my normal routine not that practicing was going to restore my normal routine but um <laughs> you know i just i want I, th- I think i just felt like i was vanishing like i you know i could barely move around the house really and i was just so relieved that i wasn't in terrible pain anymore but um yeah i can't couldn't pick really up the parent kids, my children yeah you know and it just it was amazing to me i thought well look at this i can play you know i was taking the percocet so i guess i was kind of out of it i just, I felt a little swollen from all the medications i didn't feel totally right but um you know and i hadn't played in whatever 10 days since i'd fallen a bit in the hospital so but it, it was nice and yet the, I've, i have found this like when times you know sort of emotional distress distress or whatever that um it's sad to say that that has to bring me back to the island but it's it's definitely uh kind of a soothing thing to to come back to you feel like a I think I just to feel that that's still there is reassuring. So, um, yeah, I think I felt reassured. That's probably the right word. And, um, and I felt the same since then, you know, and I, even more so not being at work and not playing, I'm really worried even now about my stamina not being where it needs to be when I go back. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the beginning of the season can be a little bit like that, you know, playing feels okay, but then you forget how it is to play a three hour rehearsal or, whatever it may be. And actually, um, I just ran into one of our colleagues, um, who we happened to see in the emergency room at the exact same time that you were getting this, uh, fracture checked out. Um, and they called a colleague's name and we both did a double take. We're like, Oh, you know, they're here. <laughs> and that person had to miss the tour as well. And I was just talking to them at work and they said, yeah, coming back that first day you know i thought i was ready but we got halfway through the overture and i was just like ah, i'm out yeah i i'm concerned about that but so i was saying you know what would you rather have would you rather be injured in a way that where you could the rest of your life is pretty much normal like you can take care of the kids you can go to the gym you can go for a run but you can't play at all like would that because we have to have a friend who's in that exact situation now who's sort of you know his life is pretty normal but he can't he hasn't been able to play so i i don't know i mean i'm i'm so vain that i feel like sure it would be great if i could still be you know i hate being in bad physical shape i hate it and i hate feeling like it's going to be a while if ever before i totally feel normal you know all around because it was a bad place to have a fall I suppose maybe I'd rather rather feel like I couldn't really, you know, like I have some kind of playing thing that you know, I can't play right now, but I can come back, I suppose, maybe. I'd, but the thing is, you know, my my confidence in my playing is, is somewhat fragile anyway, so maybe that would be a real blow. So, I, you know, it's hard to know. Yeah, I've, I haven't had this kind of injury like you've had. I've had, you know, something where I couldn't play for a time. And, I mean, either way, it's the there's a psychological toll, you know, cause when I was hurt playing wise, there's always a bad moment where you wonder if you can come back this, I mean, physically. 
yeah, I'm a little bit a little nervous that, you know, I'm always going to feel it when I sit down or something, which is like, that kind of stings. I guess sitting's, sitting's a new smoking, right? <laughs> That's what the, the, the neurosurgeon said, said. So, uh, maybe, maybe this will be my <laughs> impetus to not sit as much. Well, and he kind of, I think he was asking seriously, he's like, you can get one of those kneeling chairs where you're, you know, and you can, you're kind of sitting on your knees at an angle and, but your rear is still supported. And like, of course I can only think of the Simpsons where Lizzie Borden's trying to sit on one of those chairs. Oh, right. The During the, episode. the trial of the damned or <laughs> the right. jury of the damned. I think that's what I would look like. I'd be like falling off. And yeah, we, we just both kind of looked at each other and it's like, yeah, she's not going to go back to work like <laughs> <Can> that. <you laughs> imagine? That would be quite a sight. Um, Hey, it's LA. If any place can, maybe San Francisco, they'll, they'll all be sitting in the kneeling chairs on stage. Or maybe, yeah, maybe I'll get one of those, uh, I'll get a black balance ball and sit on that. Yeah. (laughs) Like in Portlandia. (laughs) Well, well, yeah. Asia's not on the schedule for a while. We've got some other tours. (laughs) set up next time next time we're scheduled to going and i'll like (laughs) sit at home in a chair for two weeks straight before we go you know that's not going to work right no best laid plans of (laughs) the roof will fall on me or something (laughs) um well i thought that this would be you know since we're we're easing back into now the our episodes um there have been quite a few people who have written either asking, yeah, when are you guys going <laughs> to put out another episode or, or with other questions. And I thought maybe we could take some, take some emailed questions. Sure. Now the, the armchair orchestra musician here. Sorry. Right. Yeah. You're going to have to imagine what, what performing Akiko would say. Let's, um, let's see if I remember. <laughs> and just before we do that, um, I did want to let you know about a couple exciting things um, in just a few weeks now yeah coming up um i'm actually going to be traveling sadly without you partly for reasons of fracture and partly because you may or may not be at work at that point but i'm going to be um covering the fish off national chamber music competition on behalf of stand partners for life um that's going to be exciting that's a competition i never actually participated in did you no no did you i mean were you ever close to no taking a group there <laughs> no. i i sort of like I, I i missed the whole you know i never i never really went to music school for real so well not until grad school right but like the whole era of being serious about you know it didn't happen to me so yeah my my closest connection to the competition is that i joined a group a string quartet after they had gone to fish off and got not the first prize but i think the the second prize not first prize yeah, they got the not first prize. <laughs> um, so this was the, ni- the 1996 Fish Off Chamber Music Competition. So right before I got to school, they won the second prize in Fish Off, and then they um, either their second violinist quit or they kicked them out. I'm not sure <laughs> what happened, but um, they had put a ton of work into this group, and then I just got to school and sort of walked into the group. So I got to replace someone in a group that was already sort of competition seasoned and mm-hmm. I didn't have to do any of the work. So that'll be happening in a few weeks. Those episodes will be lots of fun and they'll come out. It'll be, you know, almost daily episodes really for that. So yeah, let's get to those questions. So first we have a question from, and I, I hope I'm saying your name right, Frank Seligman or Zeligman. 
And talking about having just played Prokofiev's Cinderella Suite, how there's a movement in there that just seemed... It's covered, the violin parts are covered by the rest of the orchestra, but don't seem all that playable. And so you were asking whether we found that really doable or not. And in that piece, I, I think we, we were talking and couldn't come up with anything in there that was really unplayable. But, you know, we had an, an episode on, <laughs> on faking um, not too, too many episodes ago, how it's uh, sometimes unavoidable. Sir, what's the question? Well, the question was whether there was anything in, in that movement of Cinderella. I believe it was the midnight movement that was just, you know, would we really play all that or not? And I think in this case we would. Yeah. So, but, I, I, but there are other pieces, you know, where either we couldn't, I don't know. I'm trying to think of an example of just something we couldn't play. It's hard. It's hard to admit that we couldn't play something. Well, like Taranga Lila had some things that were really difficult. That's true. The Messian that we did. It's not that I it make it, I make it seem like I'm really reaching to find something that I find really hard to play. So that's There's not. plenty of things we don't play perfectly. <laughs> sure. But as far as things that we would just say, look, was, you know, we just can't play this. We're not going to try. You, actually, you know the part in American in Paris, the Gershwin oh, that I'm thinking of? Yes. <laughs> There's a you. part that's so fast with these scales. Um, that might be No, you you can play that. No, I'm talking. No, I'm talking about. I don't even think I'm just thinking. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that, but I mean, that thing like that never sounds good. Yeah, there there are things that, <laughs> and mostly as you know, as you pointed out in your email, one of the criteria for whether I'm going to try to play something perfectly or not is whether it's covered. By the way, that's a really annoying thing, isn't it? It's when an argument conductor... for not practicing before the first rehearsal, by the way. <laughs> you can always <laughs> you say... Spend like an hour on oh, something, gonna... like, what? You can't even hear it. I know. Yeah, I'm going mean, to, you know, see yeah, how the first rehearsal goes see, and you know? see what matters. <laughs> but don't you hate that when um, sometimes a conductor, practically before you've even gone through a brand new piece, I guess I'm here, I'm talking about a premiere or something like that. You know, in the first read through, they'll say, okay, you know, first violins, slowly, let's do these eight bars, slowly, uh-uh, not quite right again, you know, now a little mm-hmm. faster. Okay, now let's add everyone back in. It's like, boom, percussion. <laughs> You're like, come on, you can't hear a single note of that. What was the yeah. point of, that's just asserting your superiority. Yeah, or they just can't tell what you can hear and can't hear. But that's true, because they're disturbing. sitting right next to the violins, so yeah. that's what they hear. There's got to be a name for that. Kind of proximity. Yeah. Obsessiveness syndrome. Yeah. POS. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, but we did, I, the title of that episode, I think, is Fake It Till You Make It. And that's all about when it's appropriate or when it's, uh, when and how to fake what constitutes good faking and bad faking. Yeah. What does constitute good faking? See, this is what? one of those things, since I haven't been at work, I kind of forget. <laughs> You've what, lost you your fake? faking chops? No, I'm like looking like um, a piece of dirt. Well, rhythm and dynamics are non-negotiable. Yeah, especially when you are done playing. <laughs> it's non-negotiable. We talk about that. It's like, yeah, 
it does not matter if you've practiced your part to death and you finish a little bit after everyone because that's just not helpful. So yeah, let's just make sure you always keep your ear open no matter how well you are playing or faking. Just, uh, it's not worth anything if you're if you're by yourself at the end. Right. And that that is a change in mindset. I mean, to learn to, whether you want to call it sight reading or just playing music that you're not very familiar with yet, learning how to prioritize dynamics and rhythm far above the notes. And the other thing I always complain about is, um, I think after a certain amount of time in an orchestra, not hearing yourself playing so much, you, I think you do lose the ability to hear and play at the same time. It sounds weird to say that. I mean, I'm walking not, and chewing gum. But yeah, I, it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, I, I, you have to always try to keep that in your mind. And it, it's a scary thing when you realize maybe you're not sure if you're doing that or not, you know? Because you always think you're listening. Well, there's a couple things, right? I mean, there's the literal ability to hear yourself, which can be lost when you're playing in the big group. But then there's also that. It is that, lost. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you really do not hear your indi- individual sound. But then there's the the finer, the inner ear skill that erodes when you're not, you know, honing it all the time. You can literally hear yourself, but you'd be so far out of the habit of listening for yeah. detail that it's almost like you're not hearing yourself. It's weird. It's like if you practice on your own and you're in an orchestra, you can what you're feeling and what you're imagining is coming out, those things stay close enough. But if you're not practicing correctly, it's not as if no, no one practices, but somehow they're not doing it right. Or it's just maybe over time it erodes. And, you know, and then that disparity between what you think is coming out and what is actually coming out becomes a problem. Well, I mean, that's the whole that's the whole trick of recording yourself and doing it regularly enough that you can sort of keep tabs on where those things are. Yeah. It's almost as if the, what you're honing is the ability to predict what is happening based on the physical movements. Physical yeah. I sensation. Agree. Yeah. It's a strange skill to be working on, but. Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, that's almost the whole ball game. Cause if you can get those two things in alignment, then yeah. you can really fix what your problems are. But I think a lot of people think what they're fixing is what what they're working on is is not what I think they need to work on. Right. Man, we got the uh, Pasadena police helicopters are out in force at the moment. Why drive when you can fly? (laughs) Why drive when you can disturb like thousands of people at one time? This recording question leads into another email that I got, and this from Gary Hayes. And it's actually a lot of questions in one, but all centering around recordings. And it's because of the fact that in an earlier episode, um, we sort of teased the fact that we were going to talk more about the audition recording requirements for the New York Philharmonic back for the audition they had last summer. And we didn't really get into so many details about the recording that New York was asking for. So first of all, he was wanting to clarify whether a recording like that should be several takes or one take. And, you know, whether you're talking about an audition for a school or an audition for an orchestra, I mean, you have to go with the whatever requirements they say, but 
you know, in general, all these places will say unedited. And what they mean by that is that each selection is unedited. So, you know, if New York Philharmonic wants eight excerpts, then, you know, each of your excerpts should be unedited. But for sure, you take the best take of each excerpt and stick those all together. And if it's a school audition, you know, they want this concerto and this sonata and this thing. And generally that means each piece or each movement is an unedited take. Anything I'm missing there? No, I'm just thinking of your poor unfortunate student who didn't realize that. He thought it actually had to be just like first time through. Right. I I once did know someone who, um, you know, really wanted the audition recording to represent their playing most truly. And um, so sort of decided on the recording time, turned on the recorder and they said, whatever's, you know, the first take, that's what I'm going to go with. And it's hard to make your first take the best one. So you don't have to do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because I do my limited experience. It's like there's some magic to that first take that does sort of dissipate over multiple takes, but this poor guy really took it to heart and was much too honest about, about his interpretation of that rule. And, well, and, you know, Gary goes on in his email to say, um, in many instances in recent years, players are asked to submit video recordings, which limits performers to complete movements or songs, guaranteeing an unedited performance. Wouldn't an audition recording, I assume we're talking about the committee, want some kind of assurance of a recording that represents the player fairly? And that definitely is true. I mean, you can, <laughs> you can, I guess fake your way somehow or, you know, defraud your way into an audition or an opportunity for so long. And then when you actually have to play live, everything will come out. But well, that should, should be reassuring, right? It's like, just think about it. What they're really saying is we can tell what kind of player you are. Even if you, even if you think you're, you're getting away with something quote unquote by like, you know, being able to do it over and without a mistake, they're not really looking for mistakes or lack of mistakes. Oh, I'm mean, sure if you, if you leave some glaring errors in there, they'll think, well, they couldn't get a better take possibly, you know, but, but really what they're saying they're looking for is, you know, they, they can tell quality of a player that's sort of outside of, of like in tiny, you know, things that, that always catch our attention, the scratches or this or that, then that's not, what they're really focused on. They think, you know, they can tell if this is someone good, whether or not that happens. I mean, if there are people who think they could put together an amazing recording with unlimited editing, that's almost never the case. I mean, sound, you can't make someone sound better with some tricks. You can't make them sound like Itzhak Perlman. Um, you can fix intonation for sure. Especially nowadays, tools are much you better. Can. Than you they can used fix a be. note here or there, but you can't fix like a trend. I mean, if someone's just, you know, no, you'd have to go on a note by note basis, which is extraordinarily time consuming and expensive. And, and, and you, I think, you know, that's, I always say that that's what they're looking for in, in an audition or playing is like, is trends, either one, a good, good trend or a bad trend. Yeah. I mean, and in that, <laughs> you know, in that case, your editor would have to be someone who had as expert an ear for intonation as someone sitting on the committee. So then you may as well get that person to just play the recording for you. <laughs> um, and you also can't, you can't fix shifts very well, like the kind of shift someone does, the kind of string crossings someone makes. I mean, there are just a million things on the violin that are still hard to fabricate. So yeah. What do you think is the hardest? I, I To me, it's like a, 
the sound quality, like the sound quality, but that's like composed of someone's the vibrato, yeah, bow the vibrato speed. that you still can't vibrato, bow speed and bow pressure. And you add all those things together. I think that just creates this quality that people suddenly start paying attention to. Yeah. Well, like I told you the story recently of someone playing me something over the cell phone mm-hmm. and this happened to be a, a so-called a wild recording, meaning there was no editing or anything like that. And it wasn't a commercial thing. It was just somebody off the cuff playing for, I think it was five seconds. And they were asking me just to, they, they needed to know what piece it was. And I heard it for a second and I knew, okay, it's Glazidov concerto. And then I was like, who is that? You know, this is amazing playing. And it turned out to have been Perlman since I just mentioned him. And is this really a story about you and how good your ear is? No, I didn't guess that it was Perlman. (laughs) I just thought, but I mean, you would have said the same thing. You'd be like, who is this? Like there are only a certain, there's only a certain class of player this could be. And this is not over, you know, the hi-fi as they used to say. I mean, this is (laughs) over the cell phone. This is one, you know, one cell phone held up to another cell phone basically. Right. And still it was like, yeah, the vibrato, the, pitch the timing yeah the shifting sure yeah i just i have a hard time you know deciding on this because i actually in some ways i think it's easier to face putting together a video recording than it is an audio recording at least if we're talking about people that are prepared sure because with an audio recording you always wrestle with that question you know it's possible to edit it's possible to sweetened to pull all kinds of tricks you know is everyone else doing that do i need to um whereas with video it's kind of like but don't you worry so much you're so much more self-conscious right with video yeah i mean you you know you sure you think about what you're wearing and maybe your gestures and all that but but then everybody has to deal with that yeah but there might be a certain kind of well i guess you could say that about audio recording too there might be a kind of player who who thrives more in that situation, but I guess that's, that's an audition. I just, I think it would encourage, let's say video were required. And yeah, as you say, I mean, that would change the whole screen nature of an audition, but if it were required, I think you would get a truer representation of people's playing, honestly. Mm -hmm. And you know, they would just, they'd practice, they'd prepare, you know, they'd do a few takes of the video and that would be it. And you'd, you'd see how they played. Sorry, this is off topic. What is this whole quote unquote myth about being able to just show up without an audition time? Is that a thing? Like, yeah, I always heard growing up that, you know, if you're, if you have your union card, you can show up to any audition. They can't, they legally can't refuse you an audition, but that's not true, right? Well, again, it's, it's kind of like what, what you mean by legally. I see. Like how far you're willing to go with it. Because it's not like there's a federal or state law about orchestra auditions. It's just deals between you know even our the contract that we have with the la phil is technically a contract between the local union and the la phil management the agreement right it's only as strong as the rest of the union members that would be willing to stand up for you basically which is i guess what belonging to union is all about yeah so if you're a member shouldn't they technically have to support you and someone who's a member of the union shows up for an audition and it's the union guideline that they be allowed to audition and the orchestra says no, then, you know, it should follow then that there's some kind of union action. Like 
hey, we're not going to continue this audition until you allow this person to, but you know, in reality, hardly anyone goes to that much effort, but uh, you know, that that's why I like to, you know, I, I would love to make it as frictionless as possible to audition. If you're willing to put in the effort and prepare the list and show up, then you should be able to play. But have, do we know anybody who's ever done it? Shown up? Um, just kind of crashed the audition. I know I don't because it's, you know, it's not something I would do just because I wouldn't want to put in so many weeks or months of preparation without knowing that I had a time. Yeah, mentally, it's a hard thing to do. To... But, you know, I know that LA Phil gets more and more resumes now for every opening that we have. I know for the last violin audition, we got more than 400 resumes and you can't hear that many people. So there, there has to be some way to narrow it down. Um, and so, you know, recordings can be one way to do that. Right. Boston um, does that. Right. And New York recently went to a system where they allowed a very small number of people to audition live and the rest, they said, you know, make this recording and you know, that will count as your preliminary audition. So to, to maybe further answer, how would I set it up? How would you set it up if you had to make an audio recording like they were asking for? And they had pretty specific, what they called requirements, but that seems a bit steep because they, you know, they were requiring really expensive microphones and all that. The way that the professional audio engineers do it, they would have two really expensive microphones and they'd put them on a stand six to 10 feet away from the player and a few feet above the player. And you'd be in a great sounding room, you know, on the drier side, maybe, but with a little natural reverb. And then you could enhance that if you needed to <laughs> after the fact, but that can be hard to find a space like that. And mics like that, you know, the videos I make are taken with a, you know, it's a good mic, but it's only two inches away from the violin. <laughs> That's not ideal, but it cuts out any of the bad room noise. Um, that's not how I would make an audition for an orchestra. If I had to, I would, I couldn't do it somewhere in the house. So I'd have to either find a bigger room that didn't have all, you know, hard corners like the rooms in our house or rent a studio. I mean, you have, you have a much broader understanding of, uh, audio stuff than the average person. I feel like you should a more detailed thing about this because I never would have thought of these things. Well, I do have an article on natesviolin.com, how to make an audition video without spending a fortune. Okay. And that's specifically about video. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can spend more money, spend, make more effort and get better sound. I guess the thing to remember is that the better your space, the less you have to worry about, you know, like let's say you're recording in Walt Disney concert hall, you can stick a decent mic just about anywhere in the hall and it's going to sound good see. because okay. that hall is built so that anyone sitting anywhere can get a, a good sound. The worse your room is, the closer your mic has to be. I see. Okay. Um, or I see because you know, the room is, I... or at least let's say the more specific your mic placement has to be. And if you're talking about a horrible space, like my garage where I make my videos, there is no good spot. Um, so I put it as close to me as possible to take away any reflection. Okay. So you're only getting the direct sound. So yeah, there's your answer. And then the, the better your mic, the more tonal qualities of your instrument you can get. So 
Okay. Um, that matters if it's a good space, because then you can capture some positive qualities. If it's not a good space, then it doesn't really matter because you're only be capturing more of the bad. And I think the last question we're going to tackle tonight was one from Audrey Morris about um, audience distractions. And she was playing a concert recently where <laughs> that became an issue. And so do we ever deal with that? And I think we, yeah, I think I did mention a while back that um, it's getting harder and harder for me to deal with those. Strangely, I think it'd be easier, but it's harder. You mean you just notice them more? Yeah. And they, I, you know, this is weird. When I was a little kid, I used to like when somebody would clomp in or out. Or just, you know, because I'd be like, <laughs> somehow, off. yeah, like it was like, well, you know, now it's like they have this whole weird atmosphere, you know, of complete silence and, you know, this little bubble's been pierced and now I can feel like more normal or something, you know, but now it's almost the reverse. Like I have to work myself up into this state of, you know, ideal conditions and then like, if something happens and it's like, ah, no, I can, I just, it just throws me completely off, you know? Well, what are we talking about? I mean, so you mentioned people coming in or leaving or Well, whatever, and but... you know, there's always, I always feel like I have two answers. There's like the, the answer for when I'm in an orchestra setting and, and the answer for when it's like solo or chamber or something, you know? Well, I guess, okay, well, what's the difference? And then let's focus more on the orchestra. Okay. Version. So, you know, and if it's, it's much, it has a much bigger impact on me. I think if, you know, if it's obvious, if it's solo or, and I don't know why that is. I don't, I don't know if it's like, I, yeah, I think I come up with this like ideal situation in my head when I perform and this person was not part of it. This person, you know, whatever is happening, they're leaving. Or, <laughs> so, yeah. So I think that's, that's why, but so let's say an orchestra, it doesn't bother me as much. I mean, it doesn't have as much an effect on on uh, the overall performance, obviously, because it's, you know, it's an orchestra. So, and which is what I like about playing an orchestra. It's like, you know, these little things, the sum total is, you know, it's not changed by this one little thing. So, um, yeah. so that's nice, but I do personally feel it and, and more than I used to. And never used to, but I never even released a look out there, I think between movements. Well, Disney makes it easy. I mean, I must say sure. we can see the audience. You can see it more, more closer easily. and we can, see the audience so well and in a way that's nice so if it's a chamber performance i feel less nervous if i can see people you want to be playing for individuals yeah i don't like just seeing black that's the to me it's just like it makes me feel very isolated to just see blackness i feel cold i don't you know cold is sort of the opposite of like a good flow word you want warm you don't want cold so (laughs) yeah so personally you know that's that's not good but say in an orchestra setting also i think i I get nervous for orchestra concerts, as you know, and um, and that same thing applies. If I just see blackness instead of faces, it makes it harder for me to perform. But yeah, but seeing people leaving really it bothers me. <laughs> I don't know what it. And, and you know, I I think I I think of when we go to the theater, which we like doing, and how I assume that that person on stage can see me, and I think everybody in the audience at a theater performance feels that way. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like? It's because they're speaking to the audience that because I I half imagine like if I were just to get up in the middle of a scene and leave that they would say something yeah there. yeah that they would just you know you could hey, become wait. part of it yeah I am bearing my soul here and how dare you walk out and you yeah I think because they're trying it's like they're trying to talk to you it seems really directly rude and I think you're right it's are we like, trying I think, to do the same thing yeah or? but it's it's much easier to tell yourself that it's not that I think That's especially true. if it's not a piece you're enjoying you're not 
<laughs> you mean as the player? No, if you as oh, the audience the member, audience. like they, okay. they, it's easy enough for them to say, "Well, this isn't speaking to me." They're not actually speaking, right? And we're not. I well, mean, and it's we're true. not looking at them either. Yeah, and there is a difference. Yeah, but I, but I always look at it that way. It's like how rude. Like you wouldn't just walk out in the middle of someone acting in a play, but you're you feel like it's okay to get up and leave in the middle of this movement, you know and. Yeah, to me, it's like, if you have to leave between movements, I, I, I get that. Like, I understand the urge to to flee, but, like, I just feel like it's, it's just, there's this kind of decency that's not being observed if you're running out in the middle of the movement. <laughs> I know, you know, yeah. Maybe and it's you know your, what I'm talking about. It's your neurosurgeon. He's been called to... Yes, I'm sure all neurosurgeons... on her... <laughs> falling on I, her butt. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that... That's why they're leaving. Well, then people try to tell me, like, well, your audiences are a little older, so maybe they've got some kind of, you know, medical issue, like, themselves they need to attend to. It's like, well, okay. And I try to tell myself that, but it doesn't always work. I still get annoyed when I see people leaving. And my favorite stories about Asapeka, of course, the beginning of the Franck D minor symphony, the yeah. cell phone ringing. And so, yeah, we start playing, and, you know, the cell phone goes off in the first, like, five seconds or something, and... Uh, this I feel like this is kind of early on. Like uh, nowadays, I feel like it happens more. But back then, and the, right, it seemed really rude. Yeah, like, like cell phones were your not mobile as, phone. If you can your, imagine, your yeah, it was not as common to have your phone on. Or so he turned around to the audience and just just stopped conducting. Obviously, he just looked out there, and we all stopped, and he would just stared at everyone and said, "Take that call." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, so everyone burst into applause, and it was like that's you know, how it should still be. It's a big moment, yeah. So that's that's one way of dealing with audience distraction. <laughs> just head on, just Stop. turning around and you know calling them out. But so yeah, to answer the question, it, is, it does bother us, and um, it takes it takes effort to. And sometimes I just I can't look out there. You know, if I know that it bothers me to see people leave, that's my trigger seeing people walking out. So I just have to not look. Well, you heard about. Um in a performance of Hamilton or did you read about this? No. How someone was, you know, that everyone had been warned against recording with their cell phones. He said, you'll be ejected if you do. And was so Lynn Manuel Miranda was performing, saw somebody very close with a cell phone out and actually worked it into the verse, changed the lyrics of the song and awesome. chided the person in rhyme. What? Yeah. See, this is why we're so uncool. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the reasons. Yeah. Then it, it got all the press and the message was sent. Don't no, don't screw with the cast of we Hamilton. Need to, we need to we need to work on better ways to stick it to the audience. I think. Well we're we'll get there. Some, yeah, I think you need to have I think you need to have like a years long wait list of people dying to see you in order to be able to even think about pulling that one off. So, bravo, Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll close with that. And we do love getting your questions and comments. And uh, now that you're sitting more often, I think we can probably get you in front of the mic more often, too. And I thought you were going to say you can get me back at work more. Eh, it's <laughs> not quite there yet. but um, More on that later when I actually get back to work. Well, but def- definitely more from from the stand partners and uh then starting on may 10th or may 11th 
look for episodes from the fish off competition live from the fish off yay (laughs) self-band all right we'll see you next time on stand partners for life